My guest today is quite simply a titan of the television industry. Since graduating from law school in her 20s, she's dedicated her life of service to the small screen. It's a career that's seen her play an instrumental role, driving success at industry heavyweights such as Artist Television Group, New World Entertainment and Sony Pictures. For the last 20 years, she's been at Lionsgate, where she's been the vital and driving force behind the production giant's TV division. In that time, she's tripled its television roster, played a key role in the acquisition of streaming sites, stars, and negotiated the deals that saw hit shows, Mad Men and Orange is the New Black, appear on screens across the globe. All that has not gone without recognition. She's a frequent winner of Variety's Women's Impact Award, a regular entrant on Hollywood Reporter's Power 100, and has been labelled the industry's consummate dealmaker. Please welcome the Vice Chair of Lionsgate TV, Sandra Stern, onto today's podcast. Your very first podcast. My very first. I'm a virgin. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, we may park that concept for the moment, actually. <laughs> but look, it's my privilege today to do what I normally do at this point, which is rather than just get straight into, you know, you, your chronology and, and, and the lustrous CV that sits in front of me, I'm always fascinated by the person that I have uh, in front of me, you know, because I, I, I think there's a great deal to be understood later in the conversation if you just sort of set the scene early. So my gut instinct, Sandra, is that we're all shaped pretty much from about five or six key um, concepts, characteristics. We've, it's landscape, it's geography, it's neighbours, it's neighbourhood, it's family, friends, uh, and education. And, and when I go across all those metrics, you have a really interesting backstory because you studied law in LA, but you're a kid from New York, and you've taken the path less trod was that was that always the way that you saw life doing things just differently? I have been very fortunate in my life. I have a little bit of a skewed perspective. Um, everything is interesting to me. I have a great deal of curiosity, and I did not start out to study law. I started out studying literature and languages. I had, did graduate work in comparative literature. I speak a half dozen languages. And um, I've always just gone off and done what's interesting to me with uh, the question of, well, why? Why is that? Having grown up with no background in entertainment, um, I had no preconceived notions that this was the way things were supposed to be. My parents, you know, as a child of the 60s, my parents never told me this is what girls are supposed to do. This is the path that you're supposed to follow. Um, I was raised with the notion that I could do whatever I want. And uh, to this day, many years later, that has always been the key of my life, um, I do what I want and what's interesting to me. And when it's not interesting anymore, I pivot. Move on. Yeah. Fortunately, 
um, this is endlessly interesting. Restlessly curious, I would suggest. Restlessly curious, I think that's right. Look, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by that because you have talked about your love of literature. You, as you said, you speak many languages. Why law? Well, that is a very good question. I went into law because what I discovered when I got out of graduate school was that I liked to be able to eat three meals a day. And with my degrees and my background, that looked like it was going to be not a likely uh, prospect. So um, I cast around and I thought, well, all right. I happened to be at UCLA applying for a job in the comparative literature department. They had a law school downstairs, so I applied. And to my surprise, honestly, to my great surprise, it was interesting to me. I was curious about it. I was, I didn't intend to practice law, and I actually never really did. But I was curious about the systems, the, the uh, rules and systems that people are, are, are prepared to give up in the interest of some greater goal. I mean, I don't think we think about that when we get up every day, but I thought about that, that but for the law, we could do whatever we wanted with our lives. We're prepared to curb our absolute free range because there are greater goods that are important to us. And that was interesting to me. Character, um, values, that was interesting to me. And that's how I approached law. So I liked it, but I never thought I would practice law. Well, let me come on to the actual practicality of law in a moment. But I'm actually also interested that you uh, was was Los Angeles a city you wanted to study in or was this because the, I mean you talked about the course that you thought you were going to apply was that you know were, were you attracted to Los Angeles I mean you it's a, you know from shining sea to you know shining sea <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit that um I actually didn't know very much about California and I thought Los Angeles was San Francisco. I thought it was a... <laughs> as well, you weren't applying for geography. Small, exactly. It's a good thing I did not study geography. I thought it was going to be like a smaller, more sophisticated, cleaner New York. Um, I had done graduate work. Well, growing up in Brooklyn, um, when I did, Brooklyn was not what it is today. It was a little bit like Van Nuys. It was, a, you, you know, it was not cool and hip. It was very middle class, lower middle class. I studied in Paris for a bit, and I just didn't see myself coming back to Brooklyn. And I thought, well, I'll go to Los Angeles, which will be just like New York. To my great surprise, um, it was nothing like New York. Uh, and I have often said that I have been, I'm temporarily in Los Angeles now 40 years. 
but um, I have learned to love it. I go back and forth to New York and Los Angeles, and I really, you know, that the two coasts really satisfy two parts of my personality. Um, I'm going to be in New York next week. I'm going to see friends. I'm going to go to museums and to theater and live music and things that are more difficult um, and less readily available in L.A. So I, I have a much more cultured life in New York, and then I come back to L.A., and I live in Malibu on the beach. So it really is the best of both worlds. There are worse places to be, Sandra. But I'm, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. <laughs> you, you, you made the point that you've never actually practiced law, but I'm guessing the very, the very discipline of having waded your way through tort and and precedents and all all the sorts of things that go with law was very very helpful. Given that you sort of We'll, we'll get into how, but you drifted into the entertainment industry. And most of your early roles were really a sort of mix of, of, of business and law. So <laughs> was there a, did you always have a passion? I mean, was your background in literature, was that a, a sort of segue into the entertainment industry? Or was, I'm fascinated how you found yourself there. Well, you know, it's, it's... It's very interesting because, again, growing up in New York, what I knew about television was that it was a box that we would sit and watch as a family. If I had thought about it, I would have realized that somebody is actually making those shows and putting them on, and there is a back room. I, I had no background. I had no... Unlike L.A., where everybody lives and breathes and is very, very conversant with the entertainment business... In New York, that was not the case. Um, law gave me an approach, a way of looking at problems and analyzing them, not head-on, but slightly askew, thinking about things from all sides. My early um, education was actually in a, a Jewish parochial school where I studied in a very Talmudic way questioning everything, looking at everything from both sides. And so when I got to law school, that was a familiar approach to me. And I think it has been very, very helpful for me in my career. I don't um, think about how things are done or how everybody else does. And I think about what makes sense and what's, um, what uh, will suit me and will suit my company and will suit the material. But when I got out of law school and I thought about what I should do, I did what I was do. I asked everybody, uh, I would stop strangers on the street, you know, what, what should I do with my life? And that the uh, uh, response that I was getting more often than not was, well, you can take your, your literature background and your law background and combine them maybe become an agent. Um, and you I think you'd have been a good agent? Well, you know, um, I don't think so, because I was an entertainment lawyer briefly, and what I learned was 
I liked my client. Oh, I didn't like all of them. Some were really dreadful people. But I liked a lot of my clients, and they were paying me. I wanted to do well for them. But what? it was too small a canvas for me. I mean, there were some wonderful talent representatives who really do a fantastic job. Um, for me, as much as I wanted to do well for my clients, what I was really most interested in was the actual production, the storytelling. I'm at heart a storyteller, and I really wanted to be involved in the big picture, the entire production, um, which was a much, much bigger than the small snapshot I got, which was just my client's piece of the puzzle. I wanted to see the whole puzzle. And I wanted to be able to move all of the pieces around and make a cohesive, coherent picture, which I couldn't do when my client only represented a small piece of the puzzle. So um, a friend of mine who was an agent and a very, very fine agent at what was at the time William Morris said to me, you know, you want to meet John Feldheimer. So it's 1986. He said, I think you will really get him. And um, I did, and I did, and he got me, and here we are 37 years later. My God, long marriage. Um, and we were at a small company, and a very small company that had no money and no rules, and uh, not only allowed me to be creative in my thinking, but encouraged it. Remember my first deal, I had been doing television for about six months, knew nothing about it. And we had a show that we wanted to make um, called Zorro. And there was not enough money coming from the U.S. And I said, to John, I said, well, you know, I, I went to school in Paris. I know some people. Maybe I can find money. And he said, that's a great idea. Well, it was not a great idea. It was a lunatic idea. But off I went, and I found my ex-boyfriend from uh, the Sorbonne, who happened to be running a production company for a large public network. And sure enough, I found money. We put the show together um, because I had the one skill that I could actually fill out a form in French. We were able to qualify for French tax credits and benefits, and we put the show together and made it. And I, when I came Back, I realized, and you know, with a check made out to me for the money we needed to do the show, I realized that there are a lot of different ways to be creative. There are people who write, and there are people who direct, and there are people who act. And then there are other people who can figure out how to put it all together into a whole. And that's that from that very early day um, was 
where I realized I could make an impact, that I, I, I put it together. Look, I'm, I'm fascinated in this because you've used two expressions, which sort of, in a, in a way, and, and I have the slight benefit here of, of knowing you as a friend, that, you know, you, you've, you are clearly a free spirit. You've not gone down the path well trod. Your parents were very clear that there was nothing that was off the radar screen for you. You've sort of also used an interesting expression. You are at heart a storyteller. I'm fascinated. What you, but you then joined a world which, you know, I'm choosing my words carefully, has always been male dominated in large part. Um, at what point did you realize, I mean, look, I've heard you speak passionately about gender leadership and the role of women in business. Um, but at what point did you recognize that this was, this was going to be a challenge if it was a challenge or did you just plow on regardless and say, I'm the equal of anybody and I'm just going to show it. You know, I got out of law school. I was, uh, I was a kid, I was 23 years old, and I um, had a job at a law firm. I was in the litigation department, and I was the only woman at the firm. And um, I remember two incidents, three incidents. Um, the head of litigation was a man, and all the associates, he would talk and walk and everybody would follow him. And invariably, he'd walk into the men's room and everybody would follow him and I would stand outside because I wasn't going into the men's room. And at one, at the, the first time that happened, I thought, oh, this is really unfortunate. What if there are words of wisdom going on in there that I'm not getting? And after a brief time, I realized I have a great advantage over everybody in there because I don't actually have to watch this guy pee. And I thought, well, there you go. Different skills, different advantages, but I had an advantage, so I may as well lean into that, right? And I was different. I remember in, in the U.S., in order to get admitted to the bar, at least in California, in order to get admitted to the bar, you need to be presented in court by um, a member of the bar. And I was at a law firm that was all male, and I asked some of the men if they would take me to court and present me um, for my bar admission. And uh, they all declined. Nobody wanted to be seen as sponsoring a woman. Um, and it just, you know, made me realize that I was going to have to be either a little tougher than I was otherwise inclined to be, or I had to do which something that I have continued to do, which was just, you know, put my head down and plow ahead and 
um, move forward, try and get support where I could, and um, not really rely on people who were not going to be helpful. The interesting thing here for me is that, you know, this is in historic terms, actually not that long ago. No. And it really isn't. And do you say, I mean, it's an obvious question, isn't it? But do you sense things are really changing uh, in that direction? I mean, look, you're in an industry where, let's be blunt, there have been some pretty disfiguring stories uh, yeah. in the last, you know, decade or so, whether it's, you know, and, and it's about checks and balances. It's about good governances. We, we, we recognize all that. Do you think this is a world that is changing now uh, and there are many more protections and, and certainly more pathways for, 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 for women's, for the progress of women in organizations? Um, I think the world is changing, but it's a gradual change. You know, I look around, I see my friend Dana Walden over at Disney. I see my friend Jen Psaki over at, at Amazon. I see women now getting recognized at the top of the hierarchy. And so we are changing, things are changing, but, but it's, you know, you you can't legislate how people feel. Um, when the guys get together for a Laker game, the girls aren't invited. When the guys get together for the golf game and business takes place on that golf course and relationships are forged on that golf course, the girls are not invited. Um, and that is something difficult to legislate. I think it is going to be, what we can do is make people aware. Do you think right? it's about male advocacy as well? I think it's about a comfort level. I think it's about doing things that they've always done. I think it's um, a little bit of uh, tone deafness to all of the business advantages to uh, social interaction. But I think it will happen, and I think people are are more aware. So uh, I think things are changing. I think things are evolving. Um, what I do see, and I think this is the important thing, uh, because we can't change how other people are thinking. We can try to lead them. We can try to educate them. But we have no control over other people's thoughts. What we can change is how we think. And what I am seeing is my generation of women um, really did think that they were behind the scenes. They really did um, not raise their hands. They really did not uh, push themselves um, for a seat at the table. And now we are. Now uh, I'm seeing women uh, feeling like they deserve to be at that table. They deserve to be recognized. They're asking for what they want. You know, when I mentor 
young women, uh, which I do with uh, a, a number of mentorship programs, one of the things that I always tell them, even young women, is don't be afraid to ask for what you want. It's such a simple thing. Young men and boys um, either instinctively know that or or uh, subliminally raise with that notion that it is okay. It is not impolite. It is not um, pushing to say, this is what I want and I'm going after it. Young women had not typically, historically, been raised and trained that that is okay. And I'm seeing now that that is um, more in young women's mindset and in behavior. I see women now um, helping promote other women. Again, and as when I was coming up, that was not the case. If a woman had succeeded, um, <laughs> she was closing the door behind her. It, she she felt lucky to be invited to a party. She didn't feel she uh, could but have just, a friend. But, but didn't want to, but presumably sort of there was an instinctive feeling. I don't want to push my luck too far. I don't want to push my luck. That's right. Lucky I got invited. I can't bring my friend along. <laughs> let, let me, Sandra, let me, if I may go back to my opening scene setter here, because look, we talked about the epoch making shows, the, the audiences that you've gone on in your role to, to, to grab, um, globally. Uh, we've talked about just a few of the accolades uh, along the way, but what I'm, I'm fascinated here is you've, you've come from a, a, a legal background. You've gone into a very creative format, uh, and you've been described as the TV's consummate deal maker, but there's an interesting balance here, isn't there? Because, you know, this is, it, it, it sounds a bit like, you know, operation successful patient died. You can negotiate a great deal, but you can be bringing crap uh, to the screen. So you must oh. have, <laughs> but, but no, no, what I'm saying you must have, but your success rate here tells me that you have an instinctive understanding about what is going to grab an audience way, way beyond just the art of the deal. I think that that is right. Um, as I say, I am a storyteller. I, when I came into TV, I mean, the logical extension would have been, I suspect, for me to come in as a writer. Um, that wasn't interesting to me. Did, did that ever occur to you? No. No. Why? I, um, I was um, in, intending to be a writer, a novelist. I was not a TV watcher growing up. It was predictable television. There were some astonishing uh, series when I was uh, young, but um, by and large, TV was, uh, it, it has grown up along with us. It was a little bit one note. It was a little bit predictable. It didn't interest me. And I didn't uh, know that I had any skills in that. I um, had wanted to write novels short stories, 
writing TV series, um, no, uh, oddly, did not interest me. Um, as a novelist, you create your universe and put it out there. TV is a much more collaborative business. And as I said early on about my early career, I didn't want to be pigeonholed in just one part of the business. I didn't want to be the writer, somebody else, the director, other people, the producers. Um, I like being the person who uh, gets to see the big picture and gets to put it all together. Um, that uh, I, I like to think that that is a very creative um, endeavor. Yes, the director and the cast and the writers are certainly the creative geniuses behind um, the wonderful shows that we've put on the air and that everybody's put on the air. But uh, I feel like given um, my particular sensibility, the putting it all together, the actual selling the show, the actual um, finding the right show for the right platform with the right business model is very satisfying for my particular sensibility. Well, look, I, I think you're being characteristically modest here, if I may say so, Sandra, because for every year of your tenure at Lionsgate, you've recorded record uh, revenue growth. Uh, you've got just in the last year alone, you've had 14 new shows. And actually, I think three or four podcasts ago, I interviewed a, a wonderful guy. He's actually the CEO of U.S. track and field, sport close to my heart. And I asked him the question I'm just about to ask you. What, what actually makes a good deal? That is easy. A good deal is a deal in which both sides walk away feeling like they got most of what they needed. Maybe not everything. And maybe not everything they wanted, but most of what they needed. I start almost every negotiation with a question, and that question is, what do you want to get out of this deal? What's important to you? Tell me what you need. I will try and get it for you. And that's my approach. And I like to think that that is my reputation. Um, I train my business people to never take the last nickel off the table, never back somebody into a corner, make sure that everybody walks away feeling like they've been heard and they got what they needed. You know, my business, unlike a lot of other businesses, is uh, we're creating marriages. One of the first series I ever did was um, Married with Children. It went on for 11 years. My marriages didn't last 11 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's a long time to be with people. You better have a, on both sides, a very good sense of 
of being heard, being respected, being valued. Um, you better have a relationship in which if there is a problem, you can call up and and discuss it with somebody who knows you care about them. If they have a problem, they can call you and know that you're going to listen to them. People don't do that if they feel that they've been hosed in a deal, that they've been taken advantage of. So I think the deal is really uh, the foundation of the relationship. A good deal. Um, I'll tell you a story. When uh, we were doing Orange is the New Black, before we were doing Orange is the New Black, I had had a very good relationship with Netflix. They were not in the original's business. They were buying um, licensing rights to uh, somebody else's series, ongoing series. And I had made a very good deal with them for Mad Men. It was a big deal at the time. Mad Men was, and to this day, the most... Um, um, uh, recognized show in history. Mad Men is tied for the most Emmys for best series. So it was a big deal. It, it absolutely, I mean, I can only speak from a UK audience. It absolutely galvanized uh, yeah. UK viewership. I mean, that was, and, people built their day around it. And that was a total passion project. I, I saw it and I said, I, I can't live without it. Flew to New York that day. And met with Matt Weiner next day, bought the series. So that was just a flyer. I thought I was going to lose. I was hoping I wouldn't lose a lot of money. But with uh, Orange, I had, had developed a very good relationship with Netflix. And I had talked to Ted Sarandos. Um, Netflix was a much smaller company at the time about doing original series. And he said, no, we're, we're, we're not there. We're not going to do original series. And that was January. And in April, he said, all right, now we're thinking maybe we will. And I came into Netflix with a book. Cindy Holling was the head creative person there. And I said, here's a book. I'm not going to pitch it to you. Read it over the weekend. You will call me Monday. And if you do... We can make a deal. And um, she did, and she did, and we did. And at the time, Netflix did not have a business person. They had never done an original series. We were the first. And we had had such a relationship of trust, thanks to that Mad Men deal, that she and Ted and I put our heads together they did not have a lawyer, a business affairs executive, but they had, we put our heads together and came up with the Netflix model that has in some fashion persisted to this day. Some changes, but still the model that they're using today, and that was about... It was 2011. Let me oh. let me park that there for a moment because that takes me into uh, an area I would love to 
just, I guess, interrogate with you slightly. Um, it, it does appear to me, and you may far closer to it than I am, of course, it does appear to me that particularly of late, you know, the, the industry is in a state of flux. You've got, you know, particularly as, as you know, broadcast streaming, cable networks are all sort of jostling uh, for primacy. It's it's certainly more complicated world than the one I grew up in. It, 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 it's changed dramatically. How has streaming changed the way that shows A are made and the way we watch TV? It's a very good question. Um, I think culture follows um, audience, not the other way around. I think what um, Netflix was seeing, right? Um, well, let me back up because you're quite right. In the U.S., there were three networks, four networks. Yeah. At one point, there were five or six networks. All programmed 22 episodes a season. They programmed at a certain time period. You had to make an appointment. You had to sit there. You had to watch what they had on at 9 o'clock on Thursday night. And if you were not home at 9 o'clock that Thursday night, you missed it. That was television. Um, and then along came cable. I uh, put the first show on most of the cable networks. Because I realized there's a different way of doing it. Not everybody's got that kind of attention span. I did not. And along came Cable, and Cable was programming 13 episodes a season, not 22. And lo and behold, people showed up. People wanted more choice, and they didn't really need that long um, meal quick bite was okay for them too. Now along comes Netflix and again, Orange is the New Black was 13 episodes a season. It, it, it followed the cable model. Today a season on streaming is eight episodes. Uh, audiences have gotten more accustomed to um, shorter series, punchier series. They've become accustomed to choice. And, but choice is a double-edged sword. We had all thought people were going to go and, and embark on a um, make-your-own-adventure. But anybody who has children knows children like to be told stories. And we are all grown-up children. We like to be told stories. So a good story well told is still the goal of everybody who turns on whatever device they are turning on. It's a good story well told about people we care about. It, a, a good story well told. Uh, the, the key to a successful show series. But actually, all that is now being accompanied by a phalanx of marketing uh, around the shows. I mean, look, you know, I, I'm I'm thinking of Ted Lasso is a good example. You know, Ted Lasso as a global phenomenon again. You know, grabbed extraordinary audience in in the UK. All right, football is our you know is a religion, but you've got <laughs> deals with Nike around merchandising. You've got license deals with the Premier League, EA Sports, 
Um, you know, the governing body of the sport, FIFA, has also, you know, piled in, in behind it. Uh, I'm interested here. Uh, you've talked about the, the, the need for storytelling. Is that not enough anymore? Do you need the, you know, out-of-home advertising campaigns? I mean, I've driven in here this morning. Every street corner has got a billboard for an upcoming show or reminding that, you know, the next edition is on, a, the next episode's a Thursday night. Is that now absolutely hand in hand or, or is the ability to tell that story enough any longer? You know, there are a, a, a number of things to unpack in that question. It's a, it's a good question. Um, there's clutter. There are so many series. I don't know about you, but I go, uh, you know, click on my Netflix and I go into a trance. There are so many choices. I don't know where to begin. Yeah. Um, for me, I like a little curation. I like somebody to say, you know, these eight things I think might be suitable for you. Um, and generally it's a friend who says, oh, you've got to watch this or that, right? Because there are so many choices. Remember Netflix early on when they started had no intention of marketing. They figured people would just find it. They'd come to the homepage, they would find it. And, and they did when there were um, uh, House of Cards and Orange is the New Black on the homepage. That was it. It was easy to find. Now with hundreds of choices and so very many different platforms, it is difficult for a show to break out of the clutter. And that is, that is a very real uh, reality, real reality. Um, it, it, it's a it's a real dilemma, and so how do you do that? Word of mouth is really not uh, sufficient anymore, right? It's just not enough. So how do you break out of the clutter? Marketing has always been, advertising has always been a way to do that. You drive down the street, you see a billboard, that sounds interesting that looks interesting i think i might like that um there are still commercials there are still ads in the u.s um as you may know it is the platform that does the marketing and that does the advertising not the studio what we are but, but, but I, I'm, I'm fascinated here because so in a way tv executives are now commissioning shows based, I guess, on marketability and cultural crossover? A little bit. You know, when I look at, at uh, a show, the first question that comes to mind, um, particularly if I've got uh, something that I know will have choices that will be um, uh, sought after, by many platforms is where does that belong? Where will that show live best? Where will it find 
the right audience, where will it be supported? Because those are different, those are different considerations. You know, that uh, classic poem, a many a rose is born to blush unseen. Unless people know of it, they're not going to find it. Some great shows have just sort of uh, withered on the vine because they couldn't break out of the clutter. They could not find support. Um, today, we uh, once I find a, a place that I know will support it, then uh, the next question that we ask are how will you support it? We had an interesting uh, situation recently. Um, Seth Rogen has a show that we were taking to market, and as you can appreciate, a series that was being uh, written and directed and starring Seth Rogen was a big deal. And we had narrowed it down to uh, four choices that we thought were the four best choices. And then Seth got on the phone with each of those platforms and asked point blank, how will you market this? How will you reach audiences? Because he was savvy enough to know that unless somebody had a good marketing plan, the show was not going to succeed. What we will do in-house, because as I say, platforms are solely in control of marketing. We don't have the right to um, to control the, the publicity. Um, we have social media teams, and the social media teams will reach out. And so it is... Um, on a very grassroots level that we can impact. Um, we have several series on stars with um, the executive producer is 50 Cent, the entertainment mogul, and 50's got 2 million Instagram followers. Yeah. And he constantly is reaching out to his followers to remind them that his his shows speak to them and to their friends. The, 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 the lovely thing about this conversation, and I could go on all day, I'm very conscious that I've, you've already been incredibly generous with your time here, um, is that as you probably realize, my podcasts have been quite heavily rostered in sport. Yes, uh, you're the first from the parallel universe of, of ah. the entertainment world to, 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 to be sitting in the hot seat. But I am actually, it would be remiss of me not at this moment to ask you a, a sport-related question because actually in the last year or so, we've seen the, you know, inexorable rise uh, of sports documentaries, you know, Drive to Survive. I, I had Christian Horner on this podcast just a, a couple of weeks ago. He talked about the absolute game-changing, particularly in the United States, game-changing role that Drive to Survive has, has had in, in broadening the appeal, particularly actually to female audiences 
of, of Formula One uh, in the US. I mean, Last Dance I found absolutely captivating and, you know, kept me, you know, relatively sane through, through <laughs> down. But I'm, I'm interested in your view of the, the rise of, of sports documentaries. Christian thought, for instance, tried to survive. They were about getting to saturation point. He thought there was still some mileage in it. But, but I'm interested in that phenomenon. And, and what actually identifies saturation point in a market? Well, the, I'll answer the last question first. The audience tells you when they've had yeah. enough, when they're done. Um, but I think entertainment, as with all things, is cyclical. Um, there are things that uh, are in the zeitgeist now that were not a year ago and will not be two years from now in all likelihood. And audiences will let you know when they have had enough or when they move on. I still think a good story well told will drive an audience. Um, and if it's compelling enough, it will drive an audience. Do you um, have an instinct for the next genre? I wish I did. Um, if I did, I would not be talking to you right now. I would be outselling it. <laughs> um, I do not know. But what we have seen, um, there was a period of time when when dark dramas about awful people were fascinating. Mad Men, a, a very good example. Um, I, I think with the lockdown, I think the lockdown was, you know, fertile ground for Ted Lasso. Not because it was sports as a backdrop, but because of the positive and uplifting, but not Pollyanna, um, nature of that show. They don't shy away from uh, Ted's uh, um, mental and emotional challenges, um, his panic attacks, his unhappy personal life. Um, yeah, it's the human condition. It's the absolute human condition, but told with um, understanding and, and respect and uh, tolerance and from a positive standpoint. And I think that has been something um, that has driven people right now. That's very different from sports documentaries because Ted Lasso is not about soccer. Um, I went to World Cup soccer. I walked out. I didn't even know who won um, because I don't know the game. I did know it was great fun, um, but it was soccer was a backdrop. It was a passion that people have, um, but it was the backdrop. Um, it's human stories that people relate to. The other thing that we're seeing, though, is, and I think maybe also something that has always been of interest, and maybe with the with the pandemic of greater interest is is fantasy. Whether that fantasy is Game of Thrones and quite dark fantasy um, or zombies or The Last of Us. 
Um, it takes people out of their own world. Yeah. I think that that will um, persist, or at least the concept. I don't know that we are going to see that many more zombie apocalypses. Um, Sandra, I'm, 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 still, I'm still coming to grips with the thought of you leaving a World Cup final, not sure, no, not <laughs> sure who had won. I, I, I better warn you and your, your um, backroom team that you're probably going to be inundated with emails and messages from Argentina <laughs> who did walk off uh, with the trophy. Let me just pull the knitting together here because I'm fascinated in just for our listeners who 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 are who follow those things these things in sport. Um, Apple TV, um, Prime, they've all they dipped their toes into the uh, sports rights business. Netflix is is yet to do that. Where do you well, stand Apple on Apple? Most have, notably, have you ever been tempted at uh, Lionsgate? Where do you stand on that? The you know price tag's too high. Yeah, sports are really really expensive. I mean, uh, Apple is giving um, Messi a piece of uh, its upside. Yeah, right. Um, sports are very very expensive. It requires a platform now. Somebody might actually write a check for the billions it takes and, and lay it off at a platform. But the, you know better than I, the price tag is just extraordinary. Um, my friends over at um, CW, as you know, uh, yeah. uh, rights to live, and um, that has... I guess turned in, I guess, I'm actually not sure if they now uh, have the PGA as well, given the merger. But um, that was a sort of a, a cheap price tag. And it's, um, you know, it, it, it it's a, I think for, for a studio, um, pretty... Yeah. Untouchable. Yeah. Yeah. Great business. And as you uh, alluded to earlier, the merchandising. Oh, um, yeah. It's, the extent it, to uh, control merchandising it, is just yeah. extraordinary. It, 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 it's a huge opportunity. The crossover, you know, the crossover is, is, is extraordinary. The World Cup itself was arguably the best World Cup we've ever seen. And the final, you weren't sure about. Arguably, oh the no, it was several years ago. Now, <laughs> oh, okay. I, now okay. I would know. No, no. All it right, was so okay. I, I stand corrected. I stand corrected. Thank you, Sandra. This has been absolutely. Oh, this has been such a lovely conversation. I, actually, I've learned so much as well. I, I'm, I'm going to have to enjoy spending my morning with you. Well, I'm. I'm going to have to ask you the first, the last, the last and final question because. Amongst it, well, you've talked about a cluttered landscape. I mean, your landscape is about as busy as anybody that I've had on this podcast. How on earth do you relax when you're not being pulled from oh, pillar to post? I am very good at relaxing. I am. Mm. Um, I love what I do, and I also love what I do when I am not working. Um, so I play tennis. I uh, 
jog. I do Pilates. I love theater. Um, I You can find me almost every week at theater. I do, I try to give back, and so I do some philanthropic work. I'm on the board of the theater group in Los Angeles on the Johnson Cancer Center and the Saban Community Clinic. And so I do try to give back in that way. And, um, and I love to travel. So I find myself um, combining two things that I truly love, um, traveling and and television, because the world has gotten smaller. A big trend that we did not have time to talk about that we're seeing is the rise of international shows, foreign language shows, international yeah. shows in the U.S. And traveling, um, it does give me a way to see what's going on and see who's doing what that is most interesting outside the U.S. We've acquired a small interest in a management company, management and production company in the U.K., and what is very exciting, we, we have a venture with BBC in the U.K. What's very exciting to me when I travel is to turn on the TV and talk to people and see what is the newest, what is the latest, what are the trends, who's your astonishingly creative and innovative talent. I'm getting exhausted already at your concept I know, me too. Of, of relaxation. I need your coffee. <laughs> Go and have your coffee, Sandra Stern. It has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, so enjoyed to... this. Thank you so much for having me. Look forward to seeing you soon. You've been listening to Extraordinary Tales in Extraordinary Times, brought to you by CSM 